So hello, Peter. Hello. So it's, a, it's a pleasure to have you. Um, and so first of all, maybe it's just a good place to start so that you give a brief introduction of yourself, like who you are, uh, your work, uh, and also just a tiny bit of your philosophy so that people are a bit aware of your context, but not too much because that can be dragged down a fair bit. Um, okay, so my name is Peter Shurstedt H. Um, I'm, I call myself a philosopher of mind, a metaphysician as well, I suppose. I am I'm an associate lecturer and research fellow at the University of Exeter in Britain. Um, I suppose I've got an unusual, unusual interest in philosophy generally. So philosophy of mind, you know, is basically related to consciousness. So I'm interested in um, um, all aspects of consciousness studies specifically altered states of consciousness uh, via psychedelics, especially. And um, most, my PhD thesis was on um, panpsychism, the view that mind is ubiquitous in all things. And um, I've also got an interest in Nietzsche and nihilism and, and metaethics generally. So three very unpopular or <laughs> so not very common uh, likes. Um, I'm born in Sweden, but my father's British. I live in Cornwall, which is in the southwest of Britain. Separate country, really, like Wales and Scotland, or at least some people say that. But it's, yeah, um, it's a beautiful place. I live by the coast near Land's End. And at the moment, I'm locked down here, so I can't escape. Uh, I'm, I'm jealous where you live, because I see your Instagram pictures uh, of, like, your daily walks. Is that, like, really close by, or do you have to walk a fair bit yeah. to get to those places? No, no, that's just... Outside the door, really, you know. But, I've only one one place to walk. So, right. I live in a little village, and um, yeah, it's like uh, by sort of by this well, a mile from the sea. You can see the sea from the from the garden, but um, yeah, it's very it's very pleasant. But at the same time, very poor, you know, poor area. So, right, right. well, there's always the people are poor, but it, there's a lot of tourists. You know, a lot of second homeowners from London. You know, so uh, a strange mixture of poverty and uh, and uh, opulence, really. Okay, so something that I've been interesting, uh, like thinking about and I thought it would be interesting to ask is that I remember once at some point, I remember reading or, or listening, you mentioning that you got into philosophy uh, by actually Eastern philosophy. Uh, I believe that your father had some books. Is that, yeah, that's right. 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 Yeah, um, and then you tr tried to get into Eastern philosophy, but there was, it wasn't available. So you kind of switched to Western philosophy. Um, yeah, yeah, that's right. So I was, I'm curious about what you found most interesting in Eastern philosophy and when you were younger, and how how do you compare that to Western philosophy and how your views on it have changed over time? Yeah, so my father had, my, well, my father was a, an artist, painter, oil painter, and he was generally interested in philosophy, you know, as an amateur. And that, I suppose that mostly got me into, into the field. And he had a book on Nani yoga. I've got it somewhere here still. And... Um, I read that as a child, teenager, and um, found it fascinating. When I was a teenager, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, do at university. I was planning to become a rock star. Uh, didn't work out. So I thought I had to study something. So I thought, okay, Eastern philosophy, then I'll, I'll do this. Uh, but it, it was hardly any courses on it, or no, no courses at the time in the 90, late 90s. And so I thought, okay, Western philosophy, then I, I guess that must be similar. I assumed I had no idea what it was. That's how I started. Um, but then, you know, I got really in, very much into it um, as, you know, immediately, really. Um, what drew me to Eastern philosophy? Um, 
I suppose I, I can't quite remember the book really, but I know it's, it was quite, actually it sort of comes back to psychedelics. There's a lot of um, aspects of mystical consciousness there. Things about, things that I don't, I would be very skeptical of now, like um, the Atman, you know, the soul as distinct from the body. I'm more monist now, but um, you know, the, these ideas to a, a child in England, especially, or Britain, is sort of um, completely novel because, you know, in Britain, we don't really, we don't, we do not teach philosophy in schools at all. Um, and so these kind of ideas were just revolutionary to me. Even the, uh, you know, just distinguishing consciousness from the body, the simple things like this, that sort of um, started my interest, I suppose. Um, but like I said, I had no, I, I didn't know how, I knew next to nothing about Western philosophy. So, so then I started that and, uh, you know, I soon got onto Kant. I remember and that again, you know, idealism, that sort of, um, sort of, uh, lighted my interest in philosophy generally. So, um, you know, and there were links and then later on got into Schopenhauer, um, who was Kantian to a certain extent. And he had the Upanishads, you know, it's famously under his bed and, you know, he sort of, people say, there's a stereotype really that he linked Eastern and Western philosophy and, uh, you know, very much interested in Schopenhauer, still am. So it's all interlinked really. Um, but as you know, Western philosophy is so vast that I haven't really had time to go back to Eastern philosophies. There's just too many things to read right. in the Western canon. Um, but uh, having said that, you know, I have read the Upanishads and I, I got into the um, Kyoto School, Japanese philosophies, you know, a year or two ago, a little bit. But, you know, there's just too many books and not enough time. Indeed. Um, some, something interesting about, first of all, I just want to clarify something. When you said that uh, there's no philosophy uh, in school, uh, did you meant when you were studying or even now? Um, even, well, certainly when I was studying, but even now, I mean, I remember the local school of my, my son, the village school, they asked me to do one philosophy session uh, a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And I did that, and it was all novel to them. You know, it's basic things like the trolley problem and, and so yeah, on. But that you was still little kids, right? But like Little kids, yeah. Um, yeah there is older kids surely have philosophy, I'm guessing. I'm hoping. Um, well, I don't think... I know there's, a, there's a, an organization in Britain that teach philosophy to secondary schools, but there's no subject, you know, there's no GCSE in philosophy, as far as I'm aware. If, I, if, if there is, it's very rare. I mean, we teach... In schools now, there's British something called British values that is instilled in students, but no morale, no more ethical studies. You know, strangely, so right. it's lacking. And um, I think children are very much interested in these things. You know, basis of values and whatever. Um, of course, some of it's just too complicated, like Kant or Hegel or whatever. But you know, the basic questions should be there, and it's just not not on the on the syllabus. You can be sort of cynical about that, or um, conspiratorial and say well that's because the uh, authorities don't want people to question you know british values whatever it is and maybe there's some truth to that i don't know but um british education is more you know aligned to industry rather than mm-hmm. culture really yeah that's a shame though because it does have a rich history like there's there's a lot of countries that like they don't have any famous philosophers or whatever but that's yeah. not the case with britain so that makes it especially weird um also is, some... yeah, consider Hume and Locke and and uh and so on yeah yeah exactly Russell. and Russell even had a house here in Cornwall you know with his second wife mm-hmm. his daughter still lives in who I met yeah. once or twice but uh yeah no it is surprising I and like I said there are movements to push it but mm-hmm. you know generally generally you start it at, at university but then of course how do people know 
how, why would people choose it if they don't really know much about it? You know? Right, exactly. That's that's always a problem. Um, and also something that you said about like when you, like as a as a young kid, like in Britain, that's like when you discovered that everything was very new. Um, and for example, Jung said that um, that other people's cultures and other people's religion and philosophy always have an exotic appeal uh, because when you're immersed in your culture and over time, the symbols that your culture uses that are supposed to represent uh, values and, and uh, some transcendent elements start to become dead, like mechanized. And, and people, for example, obviously here in, in the area, man, we have a bunch of traditions and you have a bunch of traditions, but a lot of people don't even know what those traditions are. Uh, and so everything is familiar, but at the same time, without any inherent meaning that you know of. And, but when you go somewhere, somewhere else, like for example, Eastern philosophy or something like that, then everything is new and exciting and seems very meaningful. Uh, I remember seeing one, one meme uh, of like a, like some, some like ad or something or some story on a newspaper, like uh, in, I think in Japan or China or something like that, that a kid that finally discovered Western philosophy and he was amazed at like reading Mill, for example, And it was like, oh, I'm so tired of like my parents just shutting down my throat, this thing of like no self. And I never knew this amazing thing of Western philosophy. <laughs> and so Imagine there's always that. But you said you, you're in Slovenia. I remember I had a Czech um, friend who said that, you know, when she was a teenager, when, when, when Czech Republic or Czechoslovakia then was part of the USSR, um, that, you know, the youth thought that capitalism was a great refreshing thing that we should aim for, you know, con communism was that, or, or socialism was that terrible uh, authoritarian thing, which was so dull and boring. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, you know, the I mean, we have this expression in, in Britain, you know, the grass is always greener on the other side. Yeah, exactly. And they, yeah, it's not surprising, but I think especially with um, mind studies generally, I mean, when you, I mean, it's general. The default view, this is how ideology works, you know, there's a default view that is never questioned. Uh, it's, not, it's not as if, you know, you shouldn't question it, it's just it's not a question in one's mind. And that's how ideologies operate, that's how they're successful, of course, and that's why um, comparing different cultures is always dangerous to the, the one culture. However, with the mind, you know, when you look at that, that tells you a lot about your own self. So I think it's intrinsically appealing, you know, whatever culture you're in, even if you're, even if it's um, common to your own culture in the study of the mind, I think it's just basically it's a way to, uh, of not just understanding the universe because of the relationship between mind and matter, but it's also a way of really becoming more self-conscious. In other words, you're really beginning to understand yourself more because of course you are, one essential aspect of oneself is, you know, I'd say consciousness or the mind. Um, so something kind of like the main theme that has always been on my mind ever since discovering your work. Uh, and so I want to tackle it first to make sure we have time for it. And that is like your Nietzschean moral ethic, which is a kind of like, I guess, non-moral realism. Mm -hmm. um, and so, for example, uh, Spinoza, Uh, was a and psychist and obviously he had like consciousness and matter has different parts of the same whole of, of nature or, or of God. And, and I remember once you mentioning that on his earlier work that he thought that maybe in revelation you could access these different parts of the whole. Um, and obviously that has that, that's, that's, that's like the access of layers of reality that you normally can't access 
that obviously mm. has a very almost perfect uh, like coherence or, or match with the psychedelic experience and mystical experiences in general. Um, and yeah. also it falls very in line also with the therapeutic uh, mode of psychedelics, uh, which is like a new insight that is, that is gained. However, when I see you mention psych psychedelic experiences, it's always in the sense of like the knowledge that you gain of like some, some, some metaphysical quality that was previously unknown. However, in revelation and in mystical experiences, those experiences are almost always linked with a spiritual and moral um, aspect to it. Like they're almost inseparable, but that never shows up in our work. And, and I know why, because obviously because of your moral views, but I'm interested how, how you have these things together. That's in your case, it's more a metaphysical question, not an ethical mm. question. But at the same time, these experiences have historically always been morally significant. Yeah. Um, okay. So, well, the first part then, yeah, Spinoza then says, you know, um, God or the universal nature, synonyms for him, um, have an infinity of attributes, what he calls attributes. And um, to one of those, the two that we have, humans have access to generally is thought and extension. So by which he means really sentience. Uh, which is like consciousness, but also subconsciousness, sentience and um, matter. Although he uses a Cartesian notion of matter, you know, essentially extension, you know, mm -hmm. three-dimensionality. But nonetheless, um, that's, in, in letters, he says, you know, matter is more than extension. But basically, he's saying we've got access to mind and matter. However, these are just versions or expressions of nature, God, you know. And um, there are, he argues, an infinite variety of others, of which we have not access. But he does hint here and there that, you know, it's possible to get into these other states. But that's, I mean, that's, what What else? <laughs> I mean, the general discussions are, you know, of metaphysics are how do mind and matter relate? Um, that there could be other attributes other than mind and matter, it seems, you know, it's just like imagining another color or something like this. Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't seem to be, well, doesn't seem to be imaginable. Doesn't mean it's not possible, of course. Um, so could there be other states, not states of mind or states of matter, but could there be other states that psychedelics give us access to? That's a very interesting question, one that I'll be um, examining in a forthcoming book. Um, with regard to the moral question, so Spinoza then, as you probably know, didn't believe in free will. He was a determinist, really, you know, mm -hmm. um, everything has a cause and it can't be in any other way partly because of the ontological argument because God is perfect so whatever exists has to exist that way that's one of the reasons he does believe in Canatus though which is similar to Nietzsche's will to power that everything has a sort of drive to its own perfection um, he also like Nietzsche did not believe in an absolute good or evil um, it was more subjective to, for him you know that you, one considers good that which ultimately helps one and or helps one's group base, you know, one's family or whatever, and evil is that which doesn't. There's no objective um, form of the good or whatever for Spinoza, like Nietzsche. Um, and so this is part of his metaphysical point of view. It's part, part of Nietzsche's metaphysical point of view. With regard to psychedelics giving one a moral um, compass, as it were, I mean, a lot of the old literature on Med, uh, on mystical experiences, if you, I include mystical experience as one type of psychedelic experience, um, although of course mystical experiences are vast as well, but 
a lot of the literature on that in the past was that it, it, mystical experiences went beyond good and evil. I mean, Bertrand Russell in his um, essay on um, uh, mysticism and logic speaks about that, for example. Um, Octavio Paz. Um, and it goes, I mean, Zena, R.C. Zena, who was a sort of um, scholar in Eastern mysticism, um, always spoke about the danger of psychedelics because they do take you out of this uh, moral ideology, moral ideology of one's age, and thus they are dangerous. H.H. H. Price had a, had a comeback to that, interestingly. Um, so my position is that, and really, my I don't think my position really is ultimately that radical. I think if you push people, they'll agree with it, even though it might be uh, incoherent with other views. And it's simply this, that, well, on the basic level, it's this, that there, there is no absolute good and evil, um, just as there's no absolute virtual sin. You know, we don't believe in these uh, dichotomies, if unless one is a Christian or Muslim or whatever. Um, there is cruelty and there is kindness. But, of course, cruelty and kindness are behaviors or... Um, ways of being towards other things which are uh, which which exist no one can deny that but to value them as good and evil that is a morality so um i don't think there's any absolute uh, way of valuing these things uh you know seeking revenge for example was seen as a virtue in the past i mean the basic point that other other cultures can see Values or rather characteristics in different ways. One can value um, kindness as a virtue. One can value kindness as a weakness, for example. Uh, these things fluctuate in cultures throughout time. Um, of course, the argument against that is that, well, certain cultures are basically deficient and they don't know what's good, and uh, we do, and we're getting there. But I don't think that, because if you believe that, you really, you must believe that there's an ultimate standard of good, which is beyond culture. And you're like a metaphysician, then you're Platonist almost, and you know you, you believe in the form of the good. Most people, when you when you ask them that, say, "Oh no, I don't believe in that." You know, it's got most students anyway say, "Well, it's culturally based; everyone understands that." But at the same time, they think some things are inherently evil or inherently good. You know, mm -hmm. like killing uh, killing young young children or something like that. But of course, those 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 two views are hard to reconcile. Right. Uh, well, but first of all, I'd like to address the. The, the mystical experience of thing, which is while while psychedelics have this very Nietzschean way of like destroying like your framework, from my experience and, and from, from, from my reading, it's rarely does it by itself. There's usually there's usually destruction of the framework, but there's usually a rebuilding of some framework that's actually people have the sense that they have they have a better way of being after that experience. So they, there's a destruction, but there is a rebuilding, which doesn't quite happen. It happens to some degree with like his man of the idea of the overman. But like generally speaking, like you're, you're in the state of nihilism and moral relativism. But I don't think that happens in in most mystical traditions and mystical experiences. Even if there's some some that may claim that, and you can even claim that that minority is a truth, and everyone else is just deluded. But it still seems very odd that historically and and just based on thousands of anecdotes like every year that people had taken, there's always this moral dimension that, that, that that's what makes me a bit uh, well, I think reconcile I think, your views on that. Okay, well, I, I mean, I'd say this, that there's certainly an, an increased valuation that comes with it, you know? So 
very, I mean, there's studies on this recently. There's a massive valuation of nature, you know, as in, when I say nature, I mean, you know, the natural world, as in that which is verdant, you know, forests and the ecological landscape and whatever. And I've had that myself. Mm-hmm. There's an increased value of that. There's also an increased value, perhaps, of oneself, you know, the powers that one has and, uh, and so on. Um, that's not denied. But there's a big difference between valuing something and saying something's absolutely good. And it's the latter that I'm, I'm skeptical of. So, I mean, I've, I've, yeah, you can, like Spinoza, you know, you value that which is helpful to oneself. So if psychedelics help heal a person, makes, gets them out of depression, OCD, whatever it is, of course you'd consider that as a good. But of course, um, that, that's, not necessarily, that's not thereby a, a universal good. You know, it's good for the person who experiences it. Yeah, well... That's kind of like where we disagree, and like um, obviously, I'm not going to try to debate you. Obviously, obviously, no, much more knowledgeable than us, we could take a lot of time. But like when I initially, it's actually interesting because when I actually started psychedelics, I actually had a lot of that experience when I was younger of like the destroying of values and everything is relative. Uh, but the more I grew, and also the more I experimented, the more I actually went the other way. And I actually struggled for a long time because I always had this intimation that there was some transcendent value, but, and I tried very hard to intellectually articulate it, but mm. I always stumbled upon, upon uh, axioms that cannot be proven and, and the type of arguments that you've laid very well in your nihilism, new nihilism chapter. And so I've never been able to make any decent case intellectually, but somehow my intellectual self could never uh, supersede like this inner feeling. And, um, and actually, and eventually I just tried to, I, I just gave up trying to kind of like prove uh, an ethic. Uh, also, especially because when you're trying to prove an ethical system, you obviously have axioms that you need to work with and those axioms can be questioned, but also, so I understand your skepticism and I understand the position, but also, Another problem is that it's not, to me, it's not clear where the skepticism should lie, if it's on an ethical system or if it's actually proving the axioms. Because if Russell and, and Whitehead, for example, couldn't even prove basic logic and they couldn't prove the, the, the very axioms of mathematics, then how can someone prove ethics, which is a lot more complicated yeah, well, and a lot, that, a lot less uh, objective? A lot more objective, well, sorry. There's two outcomes of that. One is that you can't prove it because... Um, we haven't got there yet um, and or it's beyond the human condition or something like that. But nonetheless, it's out. It's the truth. Or the other outcome is that you can't prove it because it's not the case. <laughs> and I take the latter view, you take the former. And I understand your former. I understand the view that you're saying. It seems like, you know, to, to go back to mystical experience, like a noetic quality to a moral virtue. And um, I mean, I have this problem actually with aesthetics for other morals. I don't feel this need to have to sort of install a moral good. I, I just don't feel it. It's just not part of me. Mm-hmm. I never have. But um, I've got it with beauty. So um, I feel like I'm a Kantian in this sense. Kant says there is such a thing as objective beauty, although this is something that uh, interrelates to the subject. But nonetheless, um, there's a certain taste is real, he says, essentially. And uh, I feel that too, you know, I can, you know, you look at two paintings and, and you see that one is better than the other. Uh, one's more beautiful than the other, even if they have the same um, figure or whatever. 
there's something there. And you can go into mathematics, talk about Fibonacci sequence, golden rectangles and whatever, but it's more than that, or color harmonies. There's some, uh, I believe, I actually believe there's some form of beauty, but that there's no form of normative good. Um, but why I believe that there is, I mean, this is very much doubted in our culture today, that there's an absolute beautiful, but, but I mean, the subjective view here is much more common. There's no such thing as taste. There's an old Victorian idea, something like this. But I think there is. But it's like with Kant, you know, it's, it's something you cannot prove, but you feel it to be real. Isn't, isn't, isn't aesthetics within like also subcategory? Sub of morals under the greater category of value? I would say that um, value is the greater category. One subset is then, aesthetics, then, the other one is morals. Of course they are. Then they how are. do you reconcile the two? Um, well, my, my essential view is that um, value, the valuation of morals is determined by subjective, subjective principles, like preference ultimately. Um, but the determination of aesthetic values is not merely subjective, but the sort of interwoven process of the subject and the object. But I, I haven't really written on aesthetics much because I haven't really come to a conclusion as to uh, how I can in any way prove that, except for except to base it on my intuition. Um, something I'll work on in the future, no doubt. But with, with morals, it's not simply that I lack a, an intuition for it. It's rather that... Uh, there are many arguments, you know, like I play, put in, put in neo-nihilism in my book, uh, Numenautics. You know, the reasons that, for example, one has to d discriminate between prescriptive and descriptive ethics. People often conflate the two. The fact that morals have changed uh, through the past, uh, even in our, even in one so-called culture today, there are different morals, you know, take abortion as a typical example, for example. Um, there's the error theory of Mackey, there's the great work by Stevenson about how uh, moral words really are expressions of not merely emotions, but um, uh, desired imperatives for others' behavior, things like this. You know, very good reasons not to believe it, I believe. Now, okay, per, it might be a personal thing though, like I just, uh, I just have never felt this need for an objective good. Mm -hmm. I'm quite happy for there to be a multiplicity of values, all with their own goods. Uh, in the world i just i just don't see this need for um i mean it's ultimately a very transcendent metaphysical point of view to believe that there is this ultimate form of good you know no, i just don't see the i just don't see the need for it i mean uh, it's, i suppose it's a bit like you know god you know the tra traditional view of god the monotheistic view of god i just have no need for that in my life and therefore i don't seek any reasons to substantiate it yeah it's tricky because the um... Because ideally, like like <laughs> when you kind of like starts first like your one on one philosophy class or something like that, um, like obviously there's always this 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 assumption or, or like this this hidden this hidden idea that's like we're very rational and that's and that's we can debate things, and um, but a lot of times that that is based on a prior um, on, on prior assumptions that are not rationalizable. Uh, kind of kind of like humans' ideas, except he was more in emotion, and I'm trying. I think it's more general than that. But um, so, if you have no need for it, and if you can't find arguments for it, uh, well, then you're fine. The problem is when one of those mismatched, like in your aesthetics example, and that's kind of what I've been struggling with morality for for quite a few years. 
Um, yeah, the, one, one needn't say because I have an objective view of aesthetics, therefore there needs to be a more, I mean, there's a sort of, I mean, there needs to be a, an objective view of morals. I mean, but it's not a contradiction to hold both. You know, it might just be the case, just like um, one might say there's an objective uh, answer to this mathematical equation, but there's a subjective answer to whether tea or coffee is uh, better or worse, you know. Um, the, the, I mean, there's, there's, there's another axiom behind that comment even, which is that everything should be aligned, uh, which is not necessarily the case. Right. Everything should be uh, coherent. Uh, something I'm interested have, in. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. One more thing. I mean, like it is, I mean, you know, this, the proposition that um, certain um, preferences are subjective and others mirror an objective fact, that proposition itself is not a contradiction. So therefore, it's quite possible. So, sorry, can you repeat that? The proposition that certain um, preferences are determined by subjective by subjectivity and others are determined by objectivity is not contradiction. That, that proposition is not a contradiction. In other words, the possibilities out there that certain things are objective, certain things are subjective, determined oh, yeah, that yeah, way. Yeah. Right. Um, and it might just be the case that, well, maybe I'm completely wrong. Maybe it's the case that there's, there's no such thing as objective beauty, but there is such a thing as moral goodness, right? That could be the case, or vice versa. Or it could be the case that we're both wrong and there's no objectivity at all in both those cases, or, or that they both have objectivity, right? Um, mm -hmm. These are four options laid before us. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I, what I found, to, to me, the problem uh, is more that they seem different aspects of the same phenomenon which is values so but uh, i understand what you're trying to say uh but it's just that it's really, you know it's determined by how you understand morality as a value as opposed to beauty as a value it's it's a linguistic issue to a certain extent because it you know if we say if i say for example there's an aesthetic good but there's not a moral good uh and you say vice versa, this could be a linguistic issue in the sense that what you understand as a moral good might be different from what I understand by it. Right. And sometimes there are gray areas. Just open the door so that the internet's a bit better. Um, I'm, I'm a bit interested. Uh, I think I've heard you speak that you have tried uh, Salvia in DMT. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. And then DMT. Oh, okay. Um, and if you're comfortable with it. I would like to hear your experiences because I don't recall you uh, making any detail about them. Yeah, well, I haven't done much DMT and um, the 5-MeO DMT that I tried didn't seem to work, or at least it wasn't sort of um, in line with other experiences I've read of that, so that's to try again. But NNDMT, standard one. Um, I've tried the Salvia Divinorum then. Um, so my experience with that, well, I took a 20x, 20 times concentrate dose of it, smoked it. Um, can't remember the amount, but it was it was pretty heavy. <laughs> and uh, the first time, I just remember, like, um, I mean, I don't think I remember every, I think there's a common thing, like dreams, you don't remember everything, of course. Right. And you can't remember. What I remember when I took a lower dose, of it, there was a sort of um, a cylinder before me that was being pushed by these little laughing pixies, you know, the standard elf kind of thing and mm -hmm. I just found it hilarious and, and so on anyway uh, the second time took a much higher dose and I um I entered I became <laughs> I became uh, a sudden I was suddenly on a, a pink harbour street and it was run by this panda matron and um I forgot 
I had no conception of who I was, that I was on a salvage trip or anything. And um, and the, that was life. And then I, read, I sort of zoomed back and realized this was one blade, this Harbour Street, of a giant propeller with different Harbour Streets of different colors, which was rapidly going round and round. One of the blades was my um, flat in Kensington. And, um, and then I had a sort of, you know, got got the not words, but I've got the um, s- semantic semantics or the meaning that I should return to my own flat. I didn't belong here. I thought, no, I'm okay here. <laughs> and then I was sort of sucked back in. And then there was this landscape, which looked like an 80s kind of computer game somehow. And then boom, back again. I remember that vividly. Uh, since then, I've I've tried salvia. I've got my you know I had my own salvia plants, and then you know you put those in your mouth for twenty minutes, and that's much milder. Mm-hmm. You know, experience. Yeah, I haven't really tried. I mean, like I say, I'm, I'm more, I haven't really tried that much uh, DMT. Um, I'm more, I haven't. No, I've never tried ayahuasca, the soup version, mm-hmm. as it were. Uh, you know, I'm only mostly a mushroom guy. Right. Um, I, I only tried um, LSD, um, and I'm very curious to try uh, DMT. But like, it's 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 been taking me almost eight years to try to figure out what even low dose LSD experiences are that DMT is just like, it will be so incomprehensible that I, I wouldn't even bother. Uh, like I've, I kind of made a promise to myself to try it when I'm 30, I'm 26 now, but even, even that maybe I, I was too, too optimistic. I still don't know what the hell I'm talking about when I, when I get there. Um, what, what, what's holding you back? Sorry. What's holding you back? Well, I would just like to, I'd like to be more knowledgeable about philosophy and religion and psychology, which I think will give me a better background to understand the experience. That's, that's because I would, I would not, I would not like to have the experiences, the experience and not be able to take anything from it. And I, I feel that, for example, uh, I took psychedelics when I was younger and also took psychedelics when I was older and I feel like I got a lot of, a lot more out of the LSD, for example, after I started, started studying philosophy and psychology. Um, mm-hmm. And so yeah. that, that's the rationale that's behind un- it. That, that's understandable and um, admirable. I think, I think, I mean, I, I treat psychedelics as uh, something not at all recreational. I think there's a completely wrong uh, approach so, to it. I think it should be, it should be respected, you know, um, and um, analyzed thoroughly. And they're not even taken too frequently. If you take them too frequently, they somehow lose their magic and, and, um, and uh, stature somehow. They should be, uh, you know, I mean, you know, as you know, the ancient Greeks probably took them during certain rituals and so on. And, uh, and this was very formalized and, and uh, any, any um, transgression of that would be penalized heavily. And, right. uh, and this is the problem with psychedelics today. They're seen as either something that children or teenagers do as recreation, which have no value, or they're criminal, even worse. You know? and this is why um, it's, hard to, it's hard to break out of that mindset. Oh, people are breaking out of it now, but, but it will take a while. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a shame how, how they're treated uh, in our culture. And, and, and I do view them a lot that they should be viewed as almost a sacred thing really which is which is an odd word because of our secularization but i think most people get an intimation of what that is when they try it mm-hmm. and and it, it does involve some respect 
But it's interesting, yeah, you say in a secular world because, um, you know, Schopenhauer said there's a metaphysical need in all humans. You know, we, even if we're not religious or sensibly religious as in Christian or whatever, mm-hmm. there's still something, there seems to be some kind of strange drive pushing us in these directions. Um, and in a secular world, or rather in a world where people don't take Christianity to be true anymore, at least in the West, generally speaking, in academia, uh, psychedelics do provide this kind of uh, metaphysical, they, they satiate this metaphysical need to a certain extent, and that can explain their interest I mean, in the 60s and again now. Why did they go out of interest? Probably because of the huge state suppression of them during the last mm-hmm. 50 years. Um, and the fear inculcated through the state, you know, that, like, you know, have you seen those American adverts with LSD and fried eggs? Yeah. Is your brain on LSD, like an egg frying crazily on a frying pan. Yeah, Um, very typical of propaganda. Yeah, it's amazing propaganda, really, but it had a massive effect. And and I think that's, you know, it's, it's been very detrimental to the, uh, richness of people's lives. I mean, they do provide so much richness, just like music does, or whatever it may be. You know, a partner or um, sport or whatever it may be. There's, it's another form of 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 the richness of one's life, and in many cases, the primal form of it. Right. So to deny that to people, especially in a secular world, is cruelty instilled upon us. Um, th- this drive that you mentioned—that that, that's actually a big thing for me because I've always been like a hardcore, like atheist slash materialist when I was younger. Uh, we until, all were. Yeah, we until, all, until psychedelics all. happened. Mm. And, I, and after I got that drive, especially more towards uh, religion, uh, and religion or religious things, you can put it, uh, what I've actually been trying to do is actually kind of, kind of reverse engineer like religion, spirituality, and that, that metaphysical drive and kind of re- reverse engineer it back to psychology. Uh, but for one, it's very difficult. And two, there's certain things which I'm not even sure if that's possible because, because they're too symbolic and too complicated. And, and, and there's a reason why they have been described in, in narrative form. And when you kind of try to put it all nicely in the, like a philosophical argument, like <laughs> it's not very easy to do. It takes a while. My route was, um, I suppose I always had this metaphysical need as, you know, why, which is why I started reading the Eastern philosophy at the start. Um, but, but, and the psychedelics give sort of a direct empirical validation of, of that reality, it seems. But my, my real, I suppose it's the history of philosophy really. It was my big route out of that common materialistic atheist dogma ultimately that we that especially young 20 year old males share in the west um i think i think um we're brought up i mean at least in britain i was brought up that way not to say like this is wrong and this is right but rather just you know default view in science you know biology class this is how this works you know vitalism was the thing of the past that was wrong people used to believe in god designed the species but that's wrong because of natural selection i mean it was it's a kind Again, it's a form of ideology, which is just um, works best when it's not questioned. Even teachers would, didn't realize what they were doing. I mean, this is sort of um, it's like the banking system. You know, it's highly fraudulent, but you can't blame any particular person. You know, it's, this is just how the system works. Um, and um, so, so my route was 
to look at the history as to why that became an ideology, you know, and essentially that's really the history of materialism or physicalism. You know, it always comes to this cul-de-sac, this huge problem, which is, you know, in modern times called the high problem of consciousness, but it's had other names. It's really part of Leibniz's mill even, um, which is that you cannot explain mind through matter, what we understand matter to be. You know, this is, and this is, this is a sign that our whole, um, Cosmology is wrong. It's symptomatic. And, and I mean, I, 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 it's not just a problem that will be solved. I mean, is what Popper calls promissory materialism. It's rather, it's rather as, as Popper himself says somewhere, um, it's rather the kind of falsification of the whole physicalist paradigm. Okay, so since, since we're on the topic of, of materialism and physicalism, things like that, like I'm actually like... I'm kind of in a in a weird in between state because I'm not I don't fully commit to pen psychism, even though I'm very sympathetic to it. But at the same time I kinda of don't commit myself to materialism either. Like I, I just kinda of like in a in some weird watcher that's not really anything really. Uh because all of them just, just seem too weird. Uh but I'm sympathetic to the criticisms of materialism because I think they're very strong. But at the same time I'm I to some degree, I'm sympathetic to materialism because I think there's a I think there's a reason why the culture has produced uh, this belief in it and has then kind of progressed into a dogma. And I think I think part of it is because the materialistic view has been so successful, uh, especially in technology. And obviously, that does not explain consciousness. And you can make the point that uh, they're very different, um, but also. But but also it's it's like if there's some problems with the hard problem of consciousness that that, that make this what I'm gonna gonna say a bit more problematic. But if you if you take the materialistic view, which has a lot going for it, despite the its shortcomings, like it doesn't seem that unreasonable to put like the like as 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 Popper calls it, like some faith in it. Like that seems like to believe that will happen seems to me unreasonable. But it seems it seems a good bet. And that's something that I've kind of don't like too much about a lot of uh, metaphysics against materialism is that a lot of metaphysics that I see seem to kind of push the problem of epistemology aside because, uh, for example, Hume, which was uh, maybe the ultimate skeptic. um, So you can't prove, for example, that the laws of nature aren't going to change. So for example, so, or even that causation is, is even a real thing. And so, and you can, you can, like, you can't prove that Hume was wrong. Like that can be the case. Like causation might not be a thing at all, but the problem is that's not helpful as a belief system because one, you don't actually know what's going to happen. And also you don't like, you need uh, you need something to operate in the world that that makes sense and that seems more or less coherent to all the other things that have been successful. And Hume actually uses this when when he lays out his argument because he says we can never prove this. But for example, in, in, the, in the example of causation, like we can never prove ca- causation, but it's a reasonable assumption given our experience. Um, and so I think that's I think that's something that's. I don't see being recognized very often for materialism because I always feel like those type of people, they almost always 
like prioritizing their ontology like a type two error versus a type one error. And I think that's misguided because what should matter is your average error over time. And you have to take something into account in order to guesstimate what's the error rates based on your previous experience of your previous worldviews, let's say. Um, and so th- there's the struggle of like skepticism, but at the same time, you can't be a skeptic in everything. Like that just doesn't work very well. Yeah, well, um, I mean, you're right about Hume. A lot of people think Hume's thought um, causation is merely constant conjunction or subjunctive conditionals even, you know. But um, he didn't think that. He said, we don't have access to it, but nonetheless, it's there. You know, he, he believed that if you read him closely. Um, well, look, the first thing you said is, okay, um, well, this thing with promissory materialism Okay, it's a faith, but nonetheless, based on the past, it seems reasonable. I mean, the first step there is to say, yes, it is a faith position, right? As soon as you've admitted that, then you, one becomes a skeptic immediately. You know, it's, a, mm. it's, a, it's a, that it's actually a religion, like what it, what it criticizes. Um, another aspect there is, you know, proof, you know, this also goes back to the, the questions of value, you know, the, the concept of proof, you know, uh, facing our beliefs. It's one thing to it's one thing to say, well, you know, being a pragmatist, well, I believe this because you have to believe, as you said, you have to believe in something to get along with, and this has sort of worked for our Western worlds, and uh, you know, people can be comfortable with that. Sure, I mean, um, just because, of course, something works doesn't mean it's true. I mean, people believe in Newtonian mechanics and that created a lot of machines and whatever. You know, in the end, it wasn't true as such, but it doesn't didn't matter. It worked. I mean, it's a bit like uh, general anesthetics. Uh, they work, but we don't know how they work. But that, that doesn't matter. Pragmatist root matters. Matters for what, though? It matters for perhaps peace of mind. It matters for the technological progress of civilization. That's how it matters. But for me, what matters is, you know, the metaphysical truths more. Um, but, the, but with metaphysical truths, you can't rely on this notion of proof, really. What is proof? I mean, there's... There's two types of proof, main types of proof. Really. One's mathematical proof or logical proof, if you bring those together, uh, like validity. Um, or there's empirical truth. Popper's a skeptic of that as well as was Hume, of course, uh, which is that you can't prove something to be true. You can only prove it to be false, right? right. Um, <clears throat> but, but what's that based on? That's based on observations of a particular examples, which you then generalize. So you've got that problem as well. But anyway, the point here is that proof applies to mathematics, logic, and to empirical science in terms of falsification. Does it, can you use it um, in terms of your belief systems as regards like valuation then, or um, uh, the metaphysics of mind and matter? Seems that it's the wrong tool for that. You know, you can't use proof for many things, um, you know, like, uh, you know, such as, um, one doesn't use proof for, um, <clears throat> you know, one's preferences generally, uh, but nonetheless, one gets by with them. With metaphysics, one needs to, one can't rely on proof. One has to rely on other epistemic tools for belief, such as then abduction, inference to the best explanation, parsimony, things like that. And one also has to admit that, you know, you'll never, I don't think you'll ever reach certainty with regards to this. So you say, um, you know, you're sympathetic to panpsychism, but you know there are problems. Of course, there are. There are problems with everything. Um, but the the sort of ideal that you can get 
you know, certainty with regard to this. I don't think will ever come to us. It's just a matter of, um, like I say, best explanation of the phenomena that one sees. But, but exactly because of that lack of certainty, I think that's exactly actually what gives some argument for materialism. Because, for example, obviously, I think I'm, I'm a big, big admirer of uh, Thomas uh, Kuhn. I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce it, but the, the principles of the structure of scientific revolutions. And he has been very influential in our culture, and I think not influential enough. But I think a lot of people, when they think about the paradigm shift, it's it's not only that the par- the paradigm was wrong. So, for example, it's not only that Newton was replaced by Einstein and Newton was wrong. Exactly because we can never have absolute truth, the value is that Newton was closer to whatever truth it is than Aristotle mechanics were, for example. That, I think that's what matters, and I think that's what gives some uh, some validity to materialism is because we can already accept the uncertainty that we'll never get it but we we're we're probably closer to getting it and the process to which we're closer to getting it resembles a certain worldview and then that's that that gives more power to that worldview i mean well okay maybe but i mean you know one can't talk about probability unless one knows all the variables and one doesn't so and also you can take an example like um you know the sort of progress of cosmology from Newtonianism to relativity but you can also look at other take other examples like the notion of ether which was very popular popular materialist um, concept which turned out to be completely false mm-hmm. and uh, when you speak of Thomas Kuhn of course you know he was quite critical of the mechanical view of nature um, which stemmed from Descartes so I don't know if I don't think probability is the right is, is the right tool to use here like I say it's you know, what hypothesis can explain um, most of the phenomena that we experience? Now, I think it's a form of panpsychism, um, but like I say, I'm not certain about that. Um, I just I just see too many flaws in physicalism uh, for it to be right. I just can't accept that. But, um, but I'm, of course, I'm not sure of its replacement. One is, one is the negative critique. The other is, what's, well, what's better than what's, what was a better solution? Um, so at, the, at this stage, I'm sort of more sympathetic to panpsychism, but of course, there's no, there's never certainty. And uh, again, I can't in that sense that we have to accept our human condition as um, limited. You know, right. a bumblebee will never understand the game of chess. I think, you know, and perhaps we'll never understand mm-hmm. the nature of space or whatever. Right. Or maybe um, we will. Who knows? I, th- I mean, generally, I think here there's there's a Although I think at the moment a form of panpsychism and a form of identity monist panpsychism is the most likely, um, uh, most likely variant of what's actually the truth, if you dare say that word, um, I accept that there is a factor in these discussions of which everyone is oblivious. I think there's a huge factor that we're missing, you know, a bit like in the past when people, when there was like a pandemic in the medieval times, you know, this factor of micro, you know, like viruses, for example, just wasn't known at all mm-hmm. uh, or bacteria, whatever it might have been in microorganisms. Um, if you think viruses and organisms, it's another question. But nonetheless, there was a huge factor which then explained these pandemics. I think today there is something missing. I don't, obviously, I don't, by that, for that very reason, know what it is. But um, 
perhaps the future, a few hundred years, there'll be some, something discovered which becomes a crucial factor in this relation between mind and matter. I mean, personally, I think, and this is going back to panpsychist monism again, that it's to do with the abstraction of matter. I think uh, we understand only a, what we call matter really is not a concrete thing. Uh, when we get to know matter more and more, it will become more akin to mind, thus becoming a monism. That's my, but then again, you know, this is again, a kind of promissory panpsychism, I guess. <laughs> but, um, but the fact of the matter is no one agrees and no one knows. And we have to be humbled and accept that. Right. Uh, I'm curious a bit on your, on your views on emergentism, because it's, it's something I've, I've struggled for a while, because one of the things that's, I think, I think one of the best arguments uh, for me against uh, like materialistic accounts um, is the, is the point of like the division in history of, of matter and suddenly in a nanoseconds or whatever the least divisible unit of time is like mind just pops into existence. And that, that seems, that seems too bizarre uh, to be true. And I think that's one of the strongest arguments, but then, but then the problem for me is that the, the phenomenon of an emergence itself is already very bizarre anyway. Uh, like there's emergent properties in everything. And, and I know that you can make the case that consciousness has special qualities that don't lend themselves too much to a more typical emergence explanation. Um, and so, and some people have tried to define stronger emergence, weaker emergence, uh, but I've never, it never kind of made too much sense for me. Like it always seems a bit blurry. So if you could kind of like explain, like clarify your views on that. Uh, okay. Well, mm, emergentism then is the view that the mind emerges from matter, basically, and the brain, really, human brain, especially. Um, there was something. There's a there's a group known as the British, retrospectively called the British Emergentists, starting with Mill, ending with C.D. Broad, who um, who pushed this view of uh, mind emerging from matter, um, and this ended with Broad then sort of 30s and. And um, and then uh, different mind matter theories came emerged as it was. So, like in the mid twentieth century, we got this psychoneural identity theory, which is different from emergentism. But materialists think it's the same thing. Psychoneural identity theory is the, is the theory then from people like um, Place that mind and matter are the same thing, or rather, brain matter and mind, or certain aspects of brain matter, certain patterns and mind are the same thing seen from different angles. Let me just um, sorry. Let me just interject there because something I would like to add to that. Yeah. I've seen you mention that a lot of like the the like the identity theory of like the, that the brain and the and basically the the qualia of experience uh, are just basically the same. They're, they're the kind of the two sides of the same coin. And then mm -hmm. I've seen you argue that that cannot be true because obviously there's some um, th th there can be some subjective feeling that differs in their physical organization the, that doesn't share that. Is, is that, is that, is that, am I interpreting your argument correctly? Um, there are various arguments against it, although at the same time I am a panpsychist identity theorist, so it gets complicated, but essentially what, one of the problems with this identity theory that mind and brain matter were the same thing 
is uh, multiple realization, if that's what you're referring to. So that's that. Um, it's from that Putnam that imagine if hunger was um, identical to a certain human uh, patination of neurolo neurology, human neurology, that would mean thereby mean that an octopus couldn't be hungry, for example. So hunger must be separate from its physical instantiation. Mm. Um, that's one argument against it. Um, another argument against it is the fact that is a spatial argument that if you say, um, for example, me, me imagining a triangle, uh, which has certain spatial properties qualitatively is identical to certain neurological activity that would then be attributing to the same thing, separate spatial qualities, which seems to be against Leibniz's law, uh, the law of identity and so on. So there's a number of reasons why philosophers are very rarely today, uh, psychoneural identity theories. It was multiple realization that really changed things. And that changed that then people became functionalist immediately after that, which is that a mental state's really just a function of the brain, um, which kind of depends how you define it, but that's kind of a version of emergentism. In the 1970s, emergentism uh, became the de facto view, according to Jay Gwan Kim, at least, who was a great philosopher of mind who just died. Um, um, and so the, the analogy of emergentism is something like this, like John Searle, for example, against Leibniz's mill. It's something like this, that, you know, Leibniz's mill is, matter can't be mined because if you imagine a giant brain, like a mill, a factory, you walk into it and you see levers and pulleys and whatever operating, you nowhere see, see perception, you know where we're a mental state, really, like an emotion. Um, therefore, you cannot know the mind through matter. Um, now, Searle said, well, this is a bit like um, going zooming into water and you see all the mole you know, molecules uh, moving, whatever. Nowhere from that can you see liquidity wetness. But nonetheless, we know that uh, you know, liquidity emerges from these mi micro constituents. Um, the problem with that, of course, with, is that it's, I'd say it's a disanalogy because you can understand how liquidity emerges from micromolecules moving by simply zooming out. You see the wetness from one stance, you observe it, observe it, and you see these molecules moving from another stance of spatial organization, right, from distance, basically. Whereas with the mind, it's it's very different matter because you can't, let's say, um, you're thinking about the color purple, right? You can't zoom into that purple and see uh, synapses firing between neurons, whatever, right? It's a very different, different, um, it's a very different relation in my view. Um, so you can't just simply use analogies of emergence found in physics uh, or the natural world to explain this. It's a different, it's, it's, it's a different relation. Secondly, there's this, as Jay Gwan Kim again emphasizes, even though he was essentially an emergence because he says, well, I can't think of a better option. But um, there's this big problem with mental causation, right? Which is that mind somehow has an effect on the body and also has an effect on another mental state. So two, two main forms, really. There's more there. Free will is, an is a, part, a subset of mental causation. Um, the problem there is, if mind emerges from matter, if, um, if there's some kind of supervenience, um, how does that which emerges then, you know, have a downward causation effect on the body? Uh, why is this a problem? Well, and this is 
if you take this to be a, the main standard materialist view today, you have there another problem for materialism, mental causation. So there's, there's, there's two ways. I mean, Jaeguan Kim says we have to accept mental causation as real. You know, to think that um, one's, you know, hard study of Hegel or one's uh, mathematical calculations or one's plans for the day or one's desire for beer or whatever it may be has no effect upon the world. That one, you know, one's conscious intelligence has no effect upon the world is something that should be ruled out. Uh, therefore, we must accept mental causation. The question is, how does that fit into an emergentist framework? It doesn't, he says. This remains a massive problem. Um, another route one can take is epiphenomenalism from Thomas Huxley, Walter Huxley's grandfather, which is that, well, mental states don't have an effect on the, on the, on the brain or on the body generally or on the world. They are epiphenomena, they are after effects like the steam coming from a locomotive engine. But the, the problem with that, of course, is then, you know, uh, well, one problem with it is this evolutionary argument that Popper speaks about, but it goes back to Bradley and some others, Bradley, turn of the 20th century, um, which is that um, if mentality, well, well, the evolutionary argument is if mentality, the mind, has no effect at all upon the body, the brain, the body, and the world around it, then why did it evolve? Um, and not only in humans, why did it evolve in presumably um, all species, or all at least complex species, mammals at least, say, um, and why, why did it evolve and why has it not become obsolete? Um, is it a spandrel? I mean, so, certain things do evolve and without any, any uh, uh, direct purpose. Um, well, it's very hard to say. It's a, you know, consciousness, which is the most, seemingly the most important thing to one's life and which seemingly exists in other animals, un unless you believe, like Descartes, no other animals have consciousness. To say that was an accident in so many different cases seemed highly unlikely. So, and also going by, you know, Alexander's dictum that to exist is to have power, right? A number of reasons, there are a number of reasons why people, philosophers generally, and really most scientists or biologists, if you ask them directly, are not epiphenomenalists. They will think that we have evolved intelligence for reasons. We have evolved perception to um, help us, you know, hunt or forage, whatever, right? There seems to be, I mean, you know, it's just common sense that our mind plays an important role in our life. Um, but this does not cohere. I mean, there are many attempts to explain it, but ultimately, um, none of them are satisfactory. No one agrees with any of the um, answers. Mm -hmm. And so the problem of mental causation becomes like a problem for emergent, a massive problem for emergentism generally, and one reason why I don't accept emergentism, one of many reasons. But to say that mental causation is real is not necessarily the same thing as to say that free will is real. Uh, right. so, um, so like... Um, the good example is Schopenhauer. So I would say that Schopenhauer believes in mental causation, though he was explicitly against free will. I mean, he wrote an essay on freedom of the will, sort of against it, although he's, he accepts something called transcendental, transcendental freedom, which is a Kantian thing. But essentially the coherence of free will, uh, no free will and mental causation is this, that he believes, you know, um, the purpose of consciousness is to, the ultimate purpose rather, well, one of the main purposes, I should say, practical purpose, is to give you a selection of future possibilities. You can imagine what's about to happen. You know, if I take, 
if I catch a train, this will happen. If I don't catch it, this will happen. If I catch the next train, this will happen, whatever, right? You can imagine certain possibilities. But then it's your will that chooses, is the executive. It chooses of that menu, it chooses, I'll take this one, right? right. So you're still determined by your will, but nonetheless, there's a, there's a form of mental causation in that it gives you, um, yeah, like a menu of, menu of potentiality. So now I'm not saying I agree with that, but nonetheless, um, a lot of people conflate mental causation and free will. They're not the same thing. You can mm -hmm. sort of be a determinist to certain extent and believe in mental causation. But nonetheless, mental causation and is a massive problem. Again, it, in my view, it shows this cul-de-sac that we are at in our understanding of nature. The... Mm. Uh, some of the aspects that's about emergencism and about arising properties that then can like downward effect. Um, I need to think that through because it's a bit complicated. And I'll have to I mean, this is a classic example of the whirlpool, you know, that there's an emergent property of molecules within the water, but then it has a downward causation. It pulls mm -hmm. all the molecules with it. Right. That's one example analogy used. But again, like I say, this is argument by, it's very dangerous to get into arguments by analogy because right. You can always pick an example which would be an, uh, an analogy, but you can pick another example with, which would not be an analogy. Mm -hmm. And it's not proof, and it's not empirical. It's a, it's a dangerous dangerous way uh, to argue. Mm -hmm. I mean, analogies generally, the good, the, the good use of analogy is to, is to exemplify your point. Again, Schopenhauer was master at this. Mm -hmm. um, but to prove a point is uh, not really the remit of analogy. Right. Well, it's, it's, it's very similar, like thought experiences, is it? Because it's more like, it's more like to make you understand the point. A lot of times, also to kind of um, manifest your intuitions, and then you can debate that. But kind of like the analogy or the thought of experiment kind of like makes the aspect salient. Yeah, um, exactly. It's 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 it's, um, it's a method of its exemplification. Yeah. Right. It's, um, but often it's used as a argument. An ontological, you know, to make an ontological point, which um, which, is, which is problematic. Mm -hmm. um, I have uh, I have some some issue with like the Popper's uh, evolutionary argument against epiphenomenalism, because well, first of all, a lot of things are not adaptive, and like I, I know you mentioned that, but I think I think in the culture people don't realize how often that is and actually how much of a problem that is because when you're making theories about uh, how things evolve, you actually have to know if it's an adaptation or not. And that's actually quite problematic because, because you don't have infinite access to what the function of anything is. You, you kind of have to observe and sometimes guess. So, so that, that's a very tricky problem. And then the other thing is that I'm not sure if the fact that it evolves several times that it's an argument of like, of like almost chance because the, because the way it ought to work, at least with the line, at least with the philosophy against to who you're arguing against would be that con consciousness runs parallel with the, the physical properties of the brain, but, and, and they, they argue that it's not causal, but it still, it still emerges from a property of the brain that has to um, 
that exists to interact with the environment on a specific way. And so, so, so throughout evolution, like whenever consciousness appears, if it appeared, obviously, but let, let's take that as a given because that's their view. Um, so consciousness evolves for that reason or for, or for a variety of reasons. And then those reasons are common against animals. So all animals need to face very similar problems, like problems of perception, problems of, of, uh, of the most basic movements of the evaluation of what to do of a stimulus versus an action. There's like an intermediary, like a, a kind of more kind of like a Keynesian a priority thing where you kind of like it, it generates a value structure that allows you to act based on a, a stimulus and all animals have that. So it's not on that view. It wouldn't be chance at all. And it's to be, I think exactly what you would expect, even if that view is true. Right, but in that case, you know, then they have a form of perception, which is a form of which acts upon their body, and then therefore that is mental causation. Well, I'm not sure because because if consciousness would be epiphenomenal, um, like you, those things would develop to face those problems. But you wouldn't because I'm having a hard time because I don't like epiphenomenalism. But but the, the issue would be well, it's, that it's an issue that no one's really uh, resolved. So. Yeah, but but the the thing is that um, like they you you don't necessarily have to attribute to mental causality to attribute them consciousness, do you? Because when you speak about consciousness, you speak about subjective experience, and the subjective experience is explained by epiphenomenalism. So it, it doesn't matter that they have consciousness in order to argue for mental causation. That in in a materialist worldview, that just doesn't exist, and then that just happens to. Uh, be common among animals or whatever has sentience, and then it happens to culminate in the in the human being, and so it, and so the, like the steam of the train, let's say, uh, like is epiphenomenal, but then it just happens that a lot of other vehicles have a similar mechanism, for example, and they also have that, but th- that that still doesn't make the the effect of it uh, have any causal power whatsoever. So I think that's. I think I think you can build a, a coherent view. Okay, so you're saying that consci- you know, like let's say sentience, not consciousness. Sentience can um, be a spandrel, then you know, sort of a non-functioning result of evolution in various species, which have resulted, you know, which is not merely a coincidence, but has uh, well, it is a coincidence. It has developed in different ways. Um, and but also, what you're saying there is that. Um, you know, perceiving, uh, perceiving, let's say, I don't know, um, a wolf or whatever has no effect upon you running away from it. It's just parallel to your body running away from it, which seems, but that, I mean, you know, this is, um, it just seems much more parsimonious to think that actually seeing the wolf does is a causal factor, not the only factor, but a causal factor in your running away from the wolf. Um, in other words, that there is mental causation. Therefore, epiphenomenalism is not the case. Therefore, emergentism is not the case. And we have to find a better framework in which to accept that. One example of a better framework would be a form of panpsychism where matter and mind are essentially the same thing. But like in a materialistic um, view, for example, I think a lot of people, what they would argue is that like, there is a causal connection between perceiving a tra- uh, threat and then running away from it. It's just that, for example, you have a subjective 
feeling of perception and then you have a subjective feeling of how to act and then you act but neither like neither what what they would argue i think is that neither of them are caused by your subjective experience so like for example i can you can build a machine that responds to things a certain way and then if the emergency is true which obviously has its problems and you don't agree with it but if it was like that whole process would still appear and they would have the exper- the subjective experience of it but there will still no be no causal connection so i think i yeah, think well, that could that happen is, no well, that's the epic phenomenalist view but i'm saying um it <laughs> i mean basically what you're saying is that an organism could be like a robot right and it could yeah. simply uh, recognize a threat and that would then cause an automated response which would be fleeing or whatever right Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, it could have a conscious mirroring, as it were, um, which has no causal effect on the movement at all. Mm-hmm. Um, this, yeah, I mean, this is essentially the epiphenomenalist view. I just say it's not particularly coherent, though. It just makes much more sense if the perception and the movement were causally related, or not causally related necessarily, but related in the, in the sense of identity. Um, Again, I mean, like, just to bring back the evolutionary argument and, um, and, and Alexander's dictum, why would, why would consciousness exist if it had no role? I mean, it just, I, just, I can't buy the argument that it just would have accidentally evolved. I just find that very, very implausible in multiple organisms without getting, going extinct. It's just much more plausible that it has a role as is common sense intuition. Well, I wouldn't... Common sense intuition is not always right, but... Um... Right. Well, <laughs> my, my issue is more of the, the, the problem of, of several animals at once. I, I, think, I think that's more plausible because of the reasons I explained it. But I, I do agree with you about that the consciousness emergence. Uh, it's like the subjective experience itself, that, like the first instance of, of its creation. I do think that's problematic, and that's why. I think. What, what do you mean then by multiple multiple organisms? I think I think what's because like um, because you're saying that uh, consciousness and subjective experience occurred in several animals at once, and that seems unlikely that it serves no purpose and it have been selected out. So hmm. the the reason that I think I'm not sure if that's the case is because if it just happens to emerge which is a problem, let's, let's, let's just leave that aside and assume it doesn't exist, then it could just be that the mirroring would uh, continue across evolution and everything would just be in parallel. And so when you, when you have all these different species, like it's not an accident that they all have subjective experience because they have a commonality that is a, just a mirror of function, um, but it still has no causal connection. Okay, interesting. I mean, also there could be, um, you know, a common ancestor which which caused it to flourish. You know, well, it um, has to. <laughs> it has no other way, really. Well, unless it emerged in different strands, of course, at different times, and there's another option. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, both seem implausible. I mean, another interesting thing about that is it would be a sort of non-scientific uh, theory because you couldn't prove that mirroring. It's a bit like Leibniz's pre-established harmony, isn't it? You know right. that there's a par- there's the physical, there's a physical, and there's a parallel. They're not at all connect. Well, they are connected in you know one way, but not in the other. Not in the sort of mental causation way. Mm-hmm. Um, but how could you how could you actually prove that? What would be? I mean, it's not. A sci- I mean, it could be. A met- you could say it's a metaphysical hypothesis. Fair enough, which it is. But um, it can't be a scientific point of view because you can never you can never observe that 
um, mirrored sentience, you know. Right. It would, so again, it would be a metaphysical hypothesis. So what, why would someone believe it? Mm-hmm. Well, because it explained things in the, in the most parsimonious way right. and so on. And I don't think it does. Like I said, for various reasons, it seems more parsimonious to say um, that, uh, you know, uh, there is a form of mental causation. But it's not. But I don't think mental causation is actually separate from physical causation. My ultimate view is that physical causation, mental causation is physical causation because what we understand by the physical is an abstraction. And, con- and this is Whiteheadian point of view, really. And when we really understand what we mean by the physical, that will include the mental therein. So there's not physical causation, in other words, you know, and force of nature, energy, and so on, and their mental causation are something separate, rather they are one. But that means, therefore, that um, there is mental causation. But we just have to be careful not to distinguish it from physical causation. Right. This becomes, again, but why do I believe this? This ultimately goes back to parsimony fewest principles to explain right. the same phenomenon. Um, and j- j- just for clarification, I don't subscribe to epiphenomenalism. I was just curious about your take on, on the argument I had. Uh, I, think, I think it's a lot more productive to first go from a phenomenological perspective and then try to kind of reconcile that with physics than the other way around because that hasn't been working for, for a long time. And, mm. and at that point, it, it's, it's kind of... If the physics don't match, then at least for me, they're kind of irrelevant. And I've kind of strayed away from, from those arguments. Um, but since we're talking about Whitehead, I, also, I was also curious about your view on, I think they're called aggregates. So basically Whitehead, obviously everything has the has consciousness on it. And there's like the, the smallest unit, but then they can aggregate into bigger things like, 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 well, does he consider already that does aggregates includes uh, non-organic matter for Whitehead? Yeah, I mean, there's a number of distinctions. So the smallest unit for him is an actual entity or actual occasion, which is like a drop of experience from William James. Mm-hmm. Essentially, it's not consciousness. It's, it's again, it's sentience. Like, um, sentience, let's say, right. yeah. The reason is consciousness, which relates to the word conscious, and conscious generally means awareness. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah, I use, I'm using the terms differently, sorry, but I understand yeah, what you okay. mean. But let's give you sentience as broad subjectivity, as it were, mental. Mm-hmm. The actual entities, actual occasions are the fundamental units of reality for Whitehead. And then there are um, societies, what you call societies, which like an electron or a human, um, which are a conglomeration aggregate then of actual entities which share a certain pattern, which comes from eternal objects, which you what he calls eternal objects. Um, but at the same time, there are enduring things like a chair, which is um, not um, really a society. It's um, more of a human concept. And then there are nexus, which are groups of things which don't really have an organizing pattern. But fundamentally, um, for Whitehead, everything is an organism. That's, that's the name philosophy of organism, but which he calls his own philosophy. In other words, there's no real distinction between the organic and inorganic. Everything is organic, ultimately. Mm-hmm. There's, there's no dichotomy. But there are um, enduring things, such as chairs, are aggregates. So he's not saying that, um, although an actual entity has its own experiential point of view, as it were, um, a chair doesn't. It's, um, it's a collection of actual entities that don't have a unified subjectivity. This is a common argument against panpsychism, that, you know, how can you believe chairs 
they can right. think or something like this, right? This is not what most pens, any panpsychists to my knowledge believe. Mm-hmm. Um, it's rather you have to make this, Bruno even made this important distinction between units, so wired calls those actual entities, Kosler calls them holons, Leibniz calls them monads, whatever you will. Uh, but there's a big distinction between units of experience and aggregates. And so, so aggregates, uh, in, in his terminology, only apply to things that don't have uh, a unified sentience. Am I grasping that correctly? Yes. So, so, so what's yeah. the terminology he uses for those who have a unified sentience? Unified sentience would be then um, an actual entity. So, like, uh, but they are also. Did, but isn't the really actual entity the smallest? A better word, really, which is actual occasions. Um, oh, actual occasions, okay. So, so um, well, he uses both, but in this case, we it's better to refer to actual occasions because the smallest units uh, of which an electron is made consists of these actual um, occasions, but um, our own human experiences also consist of actual occasions. So uh, momentary events, really. Momentary processes. Right. Uh, And then when they... Over time, these momentary um, experiences, which are uh, part of us, over time, uh, when we compare them, we create one unit, you know, like a human, you know, like a Tiago, whatever, right? Mm -hmm. But this is really um, a human way of putting together many similar experiences into one unit, giving it a word and thus saying it is a thing, as it were. But really all things, uh, for whatever process, you know, like a, are an array of processes. Right. Thus, it's also known as process philosophy for that reason. And the process ultimately is organic in the sense that it's, a, it's self-systematic rather than being just an isolated bit of matter or whatever it may be. So there's, you know, an isolated bit of man- matter is an enduring thing, which is really our abstraction of um, a multiplicity of actual occasions, which in their essence are of the type organism, in other words, self-systematic. So. And about the, the, the bigger units uh, of sentience, uh, how are they formed and, and how are they categorized? Because something that always kind of bothered me about panpsychism is that, like, I, I can understand why you can argue otherwise, but I always had the feeling that it just pushes back the, the problem of how consciousness illusion, it initially arose to the problem Sorry. of... You just cut out for me. Can you repeat the last five seconds? Okay, sorry. So something that bothered me about psychism, uh, um, psychism is that it solves the problem of how consciousness arises, but then we have the problem of how, or, or sentience arises, let's say, and that, but then we have how human consciousness or human-like consciousness, like animals, arises. Because, it's, because if you actually talk with regular people, that's actually a, a lot of times what they care about. It's like if, if you just talk to them about like even if you manage to explain to them uh, the possibility of like the sentience of like an elementary uh, elementary particle of physics, for example, uh, like even if they accept that, like they won't care about it. Like they will care about uh, our consciousness or animals consciousness that, that has, that has a narrative that has memory, uh, things like that. And so how does Whitehead explain that emergence? Okay. Well, what, one of the main problems of panpsychism is known as the combination problem, which is what you're alluding to there. How did separate units gather into one unit? Um, and at the heart of Whitehead's metaphysics is this notion of prehension. 
which is kind of replacement word for perception. So an actual entity is, as I said, a, a process. It's not a thing. It's not substance metaphysics then. So it's an entity that draws in, as it were, ab absorbs other actual entities in its environment and in its past into itself to create, um, to create itself ultimately. So for Whitehead, all perception involves the sort of part of the object, not all of it, obviously, part of the object becoming part of making up the subject. And so on a greater level, um, for him, separate, separate actual entities prehending each other, combining into societies, then merge those different types of prehension into one, into one single unity. Another aspect of this, though, is then this gets platonic again, is what he calls eternal objects. And eternal objects are basically um, Plato, you know, something akin to Plato's forms, not quite the same. Um, he also calls them potentialities. Um, but they, they're eternal because they are outside of time and space, outside of this world. In other words, they are like forms in this sense. Mm -hmm. So those aspects of higher consciousness, as it were, from humans, are the ability of uh, societies to uh, take in or uh, make ingress, as, as Whitehead calls it, these greater forms of sentience that are, have, are infinite possibilities to us. But of course, this depends on, if you believe this to be true, you have to accept this notion of eternal objects. And of course, this is for, you know, for a lot of people very hard to accept this again, you know, ultimately Platonism. Right. And but the interesting thing with Whitehead is he doesn't really substantiate them at all. He just, I mean, his, his philosophy is called speculative metaphysics, by which he means, you know, if you assume these things, if you speculate these things to be true, then it explains a lot of problems down the line. Mm -hmm. um, Bertrand Russell, his student, was much, much better at explaining what, well, something akin to these he calls universals, you know, and he, he explains why he believed them to have an ontological status. Um, but that's huge, huge, like literature going back 2000, more than 2000 years, you know, all the medieval literature regarding nominalism as opposed to universal realism. Um, but Whitehead takes the universal realist viewpoint, and as such, the explanation of how these things can combine is that they are able to make ingress these greater, higher forms of eternal objects. But, but like even explaining the process to which the, the separate instances of sentience gets uh, combined into something, unless I missed something, that doesn't, that doesn't explain the emergence of properties, properties within that unit. It just explains how they come together, but they can be, they can come together without having anything new. Um, you mean how, how does it explain the, the, a new mental property? Is that what you mean? Yeah, exactly. Well, um, ultimately, yeah, it depends on this notion of ingression that he has. Um, but, you know, the problem of combination is also a problem for, for, for anyone. I mean, what, when you say, how do things combine? Ultimately, you're talking about, I mean, what do you really mean by that? You're talking about like um, atoms connecting or something like this. Um, but how do we know exactly how that happens? I mean, this is an infinite regress problem that we can never really explain. We say, well, because it happens because of this force, because of the... Um, weak nuclear force or whatever, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but what explains that? I mean, ultimately, you have to come to a point where you say, well, that's just reality as it is. 
And ultimately, we're aware that's his point as well. Well, you have to just accept that this ingression is part of reality. And um, also, in, in psychedelics, it's very common to have these, these jumps in consciousness so that, that seem very sympathetic towards uh, uh, whitehead metaphysics and ontology. Is, is that something you subscribe to? I mean, we're getting into very specula speculative metaphysics here, but there's two ways in which I think that uh, psychedelic philosophy can sort of show Whiteheadian um, metaphysics in an amplified light, which is like, in two ways, um, really. First of all, with prehensions then. So Whitehead's got these two forms of uh, general perception. One's called perception in the mode of presentational immediacy. One's pre uh, perception in the mode of causal efficacy. So uh, presentational immediacy then is uh, like the general consciousness. I think we have perception we have of the world, like in terms of colors and shapes and sounds and whatever. Um, but against Hume, Whitehead says this is causal efficacy perception as well, which is then um, uh, the prehension really of objects. In other words, um, the light from the sun, for example, that enters your eyes that becomes part of you. So the part of the sun, part of the perception of you. And um, this interesting, this is generally masked by um, our presentational immediacy and our conceptualization of things. Sun there, you know, and uh, human here, these are somehow separate things, but there's a representation of the sun in my mind. Um, but under psychedelics, it's often a case, you know, like I say, psychedelic experience is vast, but it's often a case that um, you will, feel a greater identification with an object that you are looking at, right? And so like, um, I mean, a typical example is in Aldous Huxley's Doors of Perception where he talks about the bamboo legs, you know, that he's looking at his bamboo legs and he, he sort of, these become part of him. He feels like these become part of him or rather he becomes part of it. And the separation between subject and object is lost to a certain extent. That's a very interesting, uh, and I've had it myself, you know, looking at leaf, a, a specific remember leaf, looking at leaf and sort of becoming as it were, part of that. Now, how does one explain that um, insight, as it were, or intuition? Well, one can just say that it's some form of hallucination, or one can say that it somehow this normal form of present perception as presentational immediacy is lost, and this causal efficacy is amplified somehow. So this primal form of perception is um, then, yeah, is um, heightened. And another way in which whitehead um, philosophy can be seen in psychedelic experiences through the eternal objects. I mean, um, there are an infinite number then of eternal objects. And um, in our everyday lives, we, ha we, we have access to, you know, the colors that we see, the sounds that we see and the frequencies that humans are, that, that, um, are available to humans. Um, and we should always make a distinction between like light frequencies and sound frequencies with the qualia that they are, because the qualia are not necessarily linked to the frequencies. In other words, you know, you could see, um, there's no, there's no logical reason why you can't see airwaves as color and, uh, light waves as sound, you know, synesthetics. They're not wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, thus showing the independence of qualia to physical frequencies. Not to mention the fact that you can also see colors without the physical frequencies, like in imagination dreams, and they're correlated rather to the uh, neural correlates rather than the physical frequencies and whatnot. But nonetheless, if we then take these um, qualia to be an aspect of eternal objects, um, it seems that we suddenly get, get, we can gain access to other 
you know, forms of qualia that we don't normally have access to in prosaic life. Um, in other words, alien forms of consciousness. Why psychedelics allow for this, I do not know. But nonetheless, um, they seemingly do. Um, creating synesthesia, but also augmenting our, as it were, palate of qualia. Also, there's other aspects of it, like I've had experiences of ultimate beauty, you know, uh, you know, sort of, it's all, you know, when you see a beautiful flower or something, you can appreciate it, but you're never quite satiated somehow. You always want more, right? Mm. Um, with psychedelics, I've had forms of ultimate satisfaction of beauty, you know, it's like the achievement, the climax, as it were. Now, this proves nothing, of course, but the ultimate point here is simply that these experiences can be better um, explained through a metaphysic that is perhaps more pan-experientialist, more Whiteheadian than uh, others. But at this level, we're only speculating. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying this is how it is. I'm just saying that this makes sense a bit from this angle. Right. And, and just, just to confirm, so when, you, so when you're saying that these, these different forms of sentience uh, can be potentially um, altered, do, do you mean... Like, I'm not sure how to articulate it, but like, do you feel a shared identity with the sentience you're perceiving? Like, is it specific to like the flower that you're seeing or, or is it, or is it more a mental thing? So for example, you're in your couch and you feel like a flower. <laughs> well, um, I, um, I mean, both, both are possible. I mean, what, I mean, what, what I was referring to, though, is, is, is um, you know, sort of a, a, a qual, as it were, in the singular, um, which is not related to an external object like a flower, but rather something that, that just becomes part, part of one's experience. Even the word experience is perhaps too much. You know. but, but so not a specific identity of something external. It's just a, an inner feeling that is alien to you. Am I... Interpreting that correctly? Uh, yeah, well, not necessarily feeling, but like I say, a qual, but, which right. could be a feeling, could be a color, uh, or, mm -hmm. um, I mean, in, the interesting ones, of course, don't have words, mm -hmm. thus, thus are ineffable. But yeah. um, states of mind, which at least I personally, and you know, a number of others that I've read, have never had before, and thus mm -hmm. are not really expressible. But, um, but, but interesting ones, because, um, you know, before one has had such an experience, one would not even believe that that were possible, these states of mind, you know? It's like one wouldn't believe that another colour is possible outside our general range. I mean, even when we talk about infrared or ultraviolet, I mean, it's not really a colour. We're talking about then, think about it as red or as violet. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't think of it as a separate colour. Right. Like, but I've to always... Imagine, to have, not, not merely to imagine, like, conceptually, but perceptually to have these other qualia is... Uh, as mm -hmm. an enlightening experience, to say the least. Right. Um, something that I always intrigued me about psychedelics was more of the, um, like the extremes it can get of like, for example, all, from all the way from ego loss to like the oneness with the universe that seems very counterintuitive because there they're, they're has opposites as you can get. And mm. th that led me uh, to speculate a lot of, metaphysics based on that but but something that i've kind of 
after some other reading, I've, I've, I've kind of shied away from metaphysics and that kind of has influenced me into being a bit skeptical of metaphysics in part because of this example, which is, for example, the, the peak experience of psychedelics and mystical experiences. Uh, something that seems to be very similar to is the, the prajna of like Buddhism. It's like the, like the mystical experience of, of, of enlightenment. Uh, sometimes, sometimes they call it understanding. And the way they usually described traditionally is like the, the, the two main practices are meditation, which is like the, the return to the center. So it's like a specialization. And then there's like contemplation, which is the opposite, which comes from temple, the gods. So you're like in, so you're like almost broadening your understanding to be ever more inclusive. And, and prajna would be the shift between those two. And so if you're, so the peak of meditation, because you're, you're going more and more down, you have more and more features and you have more transparency. You end up, I believe, in ego loss, and that explains the experience. And if you go the opposite way, you get more gestalts and you get more opacity, and that explains why you feel oneness, because it's, it's the end result if you did that process forever. And that's something that I've been trying to do is like getting these mystical things and, and trying to make them have some sense that isn't purely metaphysical, even though I'm not denying anything metaphysical. But those types of experiences are, are interesting in part because I never had them those in, in that specific term. And also because they seem, they seem almost random in a sense, because like the, it, it's too, it's it's so alien for you, for your normal subjective experience that it it barely has a link to begin with. Unlike the ego loss in the oneness, which which has has some resemblance to states that you can experience without drugs or even without the mystical experiences, because because people who practice these things have them all the time, even if they don't have the peak of it, they approximate it. But, but there seems to be a, a path to it. But if you feel like a plant, like that's, there's just no path. It's just so random. And that, that seems, that's some, some of the things that intrigue me the most. I find them very hard to make sense of. Well, I don't know about that, but um, certainly they throw up all these questions, the experience. I'd say one thing about um, physics and metaphysics. Though. I mean, like there is no non-metaphysical point of view, really. I mean, even well, physics yeah. is is a form of metaphysics because mm. I mean materialism is a form of metaphysics why because they believe in for example laws of nature constants which are metaphysical by their very nature right so they're not right. actually physical believe mm. in the past and the future they're not really physical and so on and so forth so it's all everything is metaphysics right <laughs> every right. belief every cosmology is a form of metaphysics and um, again it's ideology to say that you know uh, to, today we're outside of it it's not impossible um, but once one realizes that um, one uh, gets rid of any axioms, definite dogmatic axioms, and one can then investigate uh, more freely, at least. But you know, under under one, I mean, one of the keys to philosophy, as you know, is that one should um, become conscious of the axioms one one is using. You know, this is quite difficult because well, there are assumptions. You know, but thought thought based on assumptions that you never question. This okay. is something again that psychedelics can bring up. Anyway. Uh, no, hold on.
I have to go in a moment. This is almost two hours now, which is the longest okay. I've ever done, I think. Yeah, sorry, sorry. But that, uh, to, right. but that was, I was about to end it now because I'm trying to be considered. considered oh, right, right. Um, sorry, yeah. So yeah, Just let's wrap it up then. Um, I really enjoyed the conversation. And I really appreciate that, that you took the time. And, Likewise, uh, yeah. I wish I could continue it. It's just that I've got, well, I've just locked up my children in the broom cupboard. And, uh, they, they were banging to get out. <laughs> yeah, I, I know that feeling that that happens all the time. So, <laughs> but, okay, uh, so yeah, my pleasure. Like, really nice to, I mean, we met, didn't we, at Breaking Convention and we've sort of been in touch online for a number of years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice yeah, it was, it was great to see you and I hope to see you again when you, when you make the conference. Um, yeah, yeah, that should happen. So the philosophy of psychedelics conference should happen in middle of April, 2021. Awesome. Uh, so maybe to wrap up, maybe just tell uh, where people can find you and maybe plug your book. Uh, yeah, okay. I've got a new book out soon, actually. Um, but my, my old book, Numenautics, from 2015, is out on uh, Amazon, etc. Um, my website's philosopher.eu. Um, Twitter, Peter Shurstedt H. Uh, Facebook, I've got philosophy page called ontologistics which consists mainly of quotations from books and articles i'm reading um yeah that's about it i think yeah, a few other places instagram as you mentioned instagram is more personal stuff about my walks and whatever right but okay. um yeah yeah okay okay thank you very much i don't want to prolong the suffering of your children so i'll let you go <laughs> all right then thank you take care take care Diego. <laughs>